You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Motherless children would always find each other. She had once heard that. They had the misery that wasn't misery but presumed to be so to others. They had the misery that liked company and was company. Only sometimes they felt the facts of their motherless lives. They were a long, long way from home. They had theme songs hatched in a spiritual tradition. There was no fondling of the gold coins of memory. The world was their orphanage. Lori Moore is the author of A Gate at the Stairs, Birds of America, Who Will Run the Frog Hospital, Like Life and Self-Help. Her new collection of stories is Bark. Thank you for joining me, Lori. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Lori, this is a really fascinating look at people in conflict, in a world that's in conflict. You have conflict against conflict, within conflict. I'd like you to talk about crafting stories of very realistic people with this kind of backdrop of a world where there's a huge amount of war going on. Well, I think there are about three stories that have that. The, there are some, some of the stories stay clear of, of other world events. But, you know, the world, you know, the world is just with us, whether, even if we're trying to turn our backs on it. And so many of these characters are thinking about um, what's going on globally and their own personal lives may be falling apart at the same time, and that's just what happens in life. And so I wanted, I wanted to include that, that sort of enmeshed situation. One of, one of the characters in one of the stories actually is professionally involved in, in the intelligence world. But the the others are just sort of trying to live their lives um, and looking around and feeling that the world is quite mad and, and they feel a little anxious watching things fall apart. I, I love your vision of men. I, I have to say that you, you absolutely nailed it. I, I've <laughs> always thought that Nick Hornsby was a traitor to his sex because he tells too much about the, the way we think, but you've blown the lid off of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I especially loved Ira. So in in the the first story, debarking, and this is a longer story. Really, almost has the feel of a novel, the full feel, the rich feel. Where there's a lot of stuff happened. So uh, I like to talk about creating the character of Ira and working out the length and the depth and the prickly detail of his story arc. Well, I think I was working with the the time frame of Lent, the few weeks that um, were building up to the invasion of Iraq, and then Easter. It ends on Easter. So I had to squeeze everything in there over, I think it's a period of maybe five weeks or something. I forget how long Lent lasts. What is it? It's about. It's at least a month, or I think it's a month, but yeah. Um, 
And uh, so I had that as the time frame, and then I also wanted it had to be, you know, long enough for this new relationship that um, Ira has embarked on to sort of emerge, have its little peak, and, and also then kind of conclude. And then it ends on Easter Eve, which is not really a, a holiday, but that's that's when it ends. <laughs> I really like Ira. I think that you capture this feel of post-divorce hysteria. He describes somebody else, but he's really describing himself, isn't he? Yeah, and he recognizes it in other people, and when, and when he recognizes it in this other woman, um, he, he instantly asks, well, how long have you been divorced? And she says, 11 years. <laughs> so we can see that post-divorce hysteria can go on for quite some time. Somebody somebody recently said to me, he, he, I was having a drink with him, and he said, you know, I really feel that I am Ira, he said. And I said, we're all Ira. You know, he, you know, we all feel like that. When I was fashioning him, you know, he, he's a Jewish man. I'm not a Jewish man, though I was once married to a Jewish man. But I, the, the important thing in, in crafting any kind of character psychologically is to never think of them as other. Never think of a man as separate from a woman. You know, men and women know each other very, very well. And it's easy. Maybe women know men better than men know women. I don't know. But men, you know, in in literature, men have known women very well. And as, as Flaubert said of Madame Bovary, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. You know, he did not think of her as different from himself. And that's how you, I mean, that's how you write. You, you enter like an actor or a performer and you, and you give them part of yourself and you also, you just know them. You just know them. When you were creating this story, did you find yourself living out parts of Ira's life or living your own life through Ira's lens, so to speak? Oh, after I wrote it? No. No, as you wrote it. Oh, as I wrote it? I, I mean, I'm just thinking that when you're immersed in the character, you describe it as like method acting. Well, what you feel, you feel the feelings, you know, um, the, the actual activities and the things said and done are, are mostly inventions. But the feelings are real. The feelings are all real. I love the way that you capture in this story the other half, Zora. <laughs> Zora is a really fascinating character as well. Talk about Zora and Ira having these people in your life. I mean, they, I can imagine that you must be sitting at the breakfast table and thinking, wow. Well, you know, I wasn't Zora and Ira at the same time. The, I was just Ira because the, the story is entirely in his point of view. And so who she is remains slightly mysterious because we're seeing it through his eyes and she seems both beautiful and and inexplicable to Ira. Um, and so we see her for, you know, we, we can see that she laughs at his jokes right away, so that's a good thing. That draws him right in. She's beautiful. That draws him right in. But she, other than that, she's, she's perplexing and um, he can never really quite figure her out, and she seems insane, and he eventually backs away. 
Um, so I didn't have to be her. I could just sort of fashion her in a way that would seem bizarre to someone else, and that's what I did. You know, uh, I really love the the dynamic you have, and I think all of these stories, they're quite funny. I mean, I was just laughing out loud oh, through, good. through the the whole book. But at the same time, I'm kind of cringing in terror. <laughs> I know. So yeah. that's a really interesting dynamic. And, and uh, as a writer, which side do you, you know, which side of these characters do you empathize with? Which side do you like want to bring out or does this just kind of happen in the prose or does this happen when you're psychologizing them so it, to speak it happens it happens at the sentence level it happens at the psychological level it just it just happens in the world you know all things are true you you bring these things simultaneously together and you make them you make them inhabit and cohabit the same the same paragraph sometimes and that's just that's the definition of surrealism, bringing two completely disparate things together. But it's also um, it's also what what happens when you look around in the world and and observe it for its its small pieces of madness. I, I, I well, I like that the small pieces of madness <laughs> of this world. What a what a beautiful way of putting it. Uh, makes it uh, so much more digestible. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's just small, right? <laughs> you say in this in this story, divorce's pain is a national secret, and I think that's a, a theme that ripples through this book. And to a certain extent, it it, it seems uh, it feels really true. So I, I'd like you to just talk about creating characters who are exemplars and whose lives reflect this this uh, vision of the way we get along now, which is not so good. Um, well, I mean, yeah, the divorce rate is, is very high. It's, what, 70%, I think, at this point. Um, Gee, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's scary. Right. More people, I mean, more people over a certain age have been divorce than not divorce I think that's right although there's it, there's an increase of course now in people not getting married at all both here and certainly in Europe but you know and there are many reasons sociologically for for that but because of its its commonness I think when one goes through the experience one is caught off guard one assumes oh you know, divorce is common. It's clearly survivable. But when you read when you read really trashy newspapers about people killing each other, and all, they're they're get they're usually in the midst of a divorce. Um, it it really can drive people insane. It's it's a very it's a very heartbreaking and painful thing. And and when the character says, I you know, it's it's a the pain is a national secret. Um, that's you know. That's what many people feel. Uh, I think that's that captures some of the the power in these stories, in that you uh, feel that kind of raw edge of the pain and, and the desperation 
that that it invokes. And that's another thing that you do a great job of capturing in these stories is this feeling of desperation, this clinging to the edge. And, and I'm thinking of, of um, foes where uh, it's a very, very odd and surreal story. You talked about surreal. So talk about creating the characters in, in foes because it's this... Um, it, it captures, I think, a certain kind of party experience. Really, oh, no. well, you know, some someone once asked me what kind of what kind of story do you like most to write, and I di- I didn't really have an answer except I said, I said I think I like to write dinner party stories, because dinner parties are fun. You know, you you people are sort of enclosed into you know airless spaces and and sometimes you know the most successful dinner parties as some famous hostess said always have a tiny bit of tension and of course if you're going to write a dinner party story you can crank up the tension even more and it's like theater you know it's like theater so that's a that's a kind of and there are a couple of dinner party there's that's a dinner party story I don't know if there's another one in this book but there I have a couple dinner party stories in in my last collection of stories, too. This particular dinner party is a fundraiser, so it presents ideas of, you know, money, art, social inclusion inclusion and social exclusion. Again, the point of view is from a man who is very much in love with his wife. I guess this is the only marriage where that's not on the rocks or something, someone, some reviewer said, at least in this book. But he's sitting next to someone who turns out to be a victim of, of something and and yet he he is on an, he's on the opposite side of her politically during that very exciting year of two thousand eight when when Obama was running for president. It was it was a thrilling year and I wanted to capture a little bit of that, but also of the of the the anxiety that that everyone felt too. I mean, people were thrilled, excited, and completely anxious. And um, he was sitting next to someone who he, at first, thinks he's attracted to, then thinks he despises, and then at the end feels quite sorry for her because he learns her her story. Uh, I think that one of the things you do very well, you mentioned the surreal and, and what surrealism was. And I think you do a fabulous job of using surrealism and some of the, the tropes of the old M.R. James uh, scholarly ghost stories in, in this book, where things that are presented to us as completely real and in a manner that uh, seems quite dreamlike, that you capture the grounded, gritty kind of reality that dreams have when they're showing us something that's completely absurd and, and impossible. And I'm thinking of the Juniper Tree. So talk a little oh. bit about that. I thought that was a really, it was a beautiful story. But you, and you do some very interesting uh, playing with chronology in that story. Oh, um. Most of my stories are prompted by things in real life, and that, and that story was prompted by a dream I had that didn't seem like a dream. It felt like a visitation from 
a friend of mine who had just died. And I said to someone after I, at the very next day after I had this dream, I said, did you ever have a dream that didn't feel like a dream? It felt like somebody who had just died was coming and visiting you. And they and this friend said, oh, yes, but you mustn't tell anyone that. They'll think you're crazy. But I have, I've asked around, and a lot of people have these dreams. The recently dead visiting them very, very vividly for a while after, after the death. Um, and so it has the feel of a ghost story. And so I, I, the story is dedicated to, to Nietzsche Keen, who, who is the woman who died and who is the director of a film called The Juniper Tree which is based on the Grimm brothers' tale, The Juniper Tree, which is a kind of gruesome tale, as many of the Grimm tales are. Um, so it came, about, it came about like that. It came about from a dream or, or a visitation from a ghost. But, you know. I, I, believe, I, I believe that to be an accurate representation of reality. I, I think that we are, <laughs> in fact, visited by people that, that, and I think that... Have you had that experience? Yes. And, yes, see? And I think, too, but what's important in the story is the way you ratchet back at the end and, and play with time a little bit in, in the terms of storytelling, because these things are, are, these kind of visitations are themselves out of time. They're an experience of time uh, being contracted in the way they say, you know, um, you can travel on a black hole by just pulling two parts, distant parts of space together. I think that sometimes it feels to us like we can do that with time and, mm -hmm. and be with somebody who is very distant from us in time. And right. I, th I think you do that with the prose as well and on the storytelling level. Oh, well, thank you. I, d I think... I think what I thought I was doing was something just much more mundane, which is just to sort of present um, psychologically the slight, the slight dissonance that was that was there between those two women and that friendship, you know, which is just only that, you know, they had they had dated the same guy, you know. Well, I I think that this goes. Too with your uh, this slots in well with the vision of relationships in general between men and women in this book. Uh, I wouldn't say they're all terrible, but I, I would say they all it all feels very real and it presents, I think, the most authentic perception that I've read recently of what it's like out there. And. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> well, men and women disappoint each other. But, you know, women and women disappoint each other. You know, women, someone said to me, what I like best about your work is how you really show women letting each other down. Um, but men let each other down. That's just, that's just human beings, you know, and that's where stories are. If everybody's always, like, perfect and great and everything works you know, as it ideally should, you don't really have much of a story. You have to have you have to focus on a little bit of the glitches in in human relations to have stories. But what you do so well in this book is to find those glitches and 
turn them into stories, not just psychology cases, 101, patient exhibits. One of the ones that I found really beautifully wrought was referential. The family in that story is, is just absolutely, it seems, so real and so close. So talk about creating uh, the story of what happens when your child is institutionalized. That story you was a bouncing off of the Nabokov story signs and symbols, which is a very beautiful story. And I had, I was reading it for class. I was going to teach it the next day, I think. I, and it was about the fifth or sixth time I'd read it, or maybe tenth or eleventh. And I suddenly saw a very a slightly different story, a sort of shadow story was sort of created in my head. I thought, what if what if the couple weren't married? What if they actually visited the son? In the Nabokov story, the son is never visited. The, the, the parents go, they're turned away. But it's about surviving in the face of, of the unspeakable, really. Now, the Nabokov story is is perfect and and I didn't mean to sort of rewrite it. I only meant to sort of have my own piece of referential mania and to and to sort of bounce off of it and write this parallel thing where the where the son speaks and where the couple is not actually married and um but there are phone calls at the end. There's a lot of it, it tracks the Nabokov story fairly closely. And I didn't know whether I would be even allowed to do that. But the New Yorker allowed it, so we just kept going. (laughs) It's beautifully observed. And I think one of the things that uh, strikes me about your stories is the emotional plotting. Uh, Many stories have, you know, action that this, you know, there's some kind of action going on. And your stories don't lack for that. But I think the... They might. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but the action is more emotional, it's true. Yeah, so talk a little bit about plotting with with emotional arcs and, you know, uh, feelings. That's uh that's a tough road to hoe. I don't I don't know. I I just it's it's usually my prompt for a story, a feeling. And I think how do this feeling is so interesting and complicated and what are the different things that came together to make that feeling? And so, and so the story, so the the feeling really is the the plot and the story. You know, I put the elements in play, and in the end, you don't know whether you've actually captured the thing you wanted to at the beginning. You may have captured something else. You may discover something else. You may discover, you know, a different feeling or a parallel feeling or a collection of things. But the feeling is the feeling is the is the prompt, and and the thing you're trying to contain. And, and you know, if you're lucky, it will be the sort of the burning heart and center of your story. I love that idea that reverse engineering emotions into the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, too, I think this is one of the things you said that is really key is that you shoot for something and you start out with something, but you end up with something else that's very different from what your intentions are, but uh, sometimes better and more uh, interesting than you could have possibly imagined. And I think that that's an interesting approach to writing, I think. Well, I think that is that's just what happens in art. And I don't think 
anyone ever feels that what they end up with is better than what they had wanted. Because what you want is like always so perfect and, you know, ideal. And what you have is just what you have. And you never get precisely what you aim for. And every artist knows that. But you do your best and you might end up with a couple of things that surprise you. And surprise is good. Surprise is good in all the arts. And especially in storytelling, I think. Well, I love the dad in that story. Bitter Pete. Oh, Pete. He's kind of a stepdad, isn't he? He's like, he's the, yeah, and he gets quite a scolding from the son. I just thought it was, he was, the way you put him together and the way, the spare words you used really crafted a whole person for me. I could, I could go hang with Pete. I know who he is. Well, you can see he's torn. It's a very human thing. He's not, he's not going to do the most selfless and holy and noble thing. He's going to do the human thing, which is back out of this situation. And that's what he's in the process of doing. And we all identify with anything that is human. They're all caught in in their particular human scripts, and they're not necessarily going to overlap. They're all separate. You know, oh, it interests me, too, that how spare this story is. I mean, this is a this is a very short story. And do you, when you, yet the characters feel full, the situation, there's a huge history. We can sense a lot of the story outside of the story. Um, when you approach a story and there's so much outside of it, do you know where you're going to dive in and come out and how long that's going to be? Or, and, I mean, do the characters tell you that? Do the words tell you that? Each story is different. Each story is different. I think with with that story, because I was tracking the Nabokov story, which is kind of a short story, I could uh, I could mimic his compression. And Foes is also a, a short story, and I think I could dip in. The, you know, yeah, there there are efficient ways of dipping in and compressing and making sure that the story doesn't go on too long because certain stories just just need to be brief. The 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 story Wings, which is the longest one in mm-hmm. the in the collection, I really wanted to be even longer. So that that fell short. Now Debarking is also long. I think because I had to fill that space, as I said, from Lent to, to Easter, mm-hmm. that, that started to get protracted. Well, both Debarking and Wings felt to me like little novels. And oh. they had that kind of, there's a certain prickly feel to a novel. You, this world, you're immersed in it. One is, uh, you know, short stories a room, and uh, it's a beautiful room. And a uh, novel's more like a world. That's right. A novel's more like a world, right. Um, so talk a little bit about creating the world of Wings, which for how world-like it seems is, I mean, it's very limited. That, that, that world has some pretty serious fences. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm trying to remember the process of that. I think I just was, I was moving through the seasons with that situation mm-hmm. where it's, it's a couple 
who are slightly plotting against a person who is dying and has money. You know, this is an old plot element that Henry James used in Wings of the Dove. Terence Malick used it in the film Days of Heaven. It's a great plot element. James would twist that triangle around in almost every novel. He would look at that same those same components, a couple, someone else, money, marriage, and, and twist it around and come at it from a different angle. I mean, his most famous one is, of course, Portrait of a Lady, which is a fabulous triangle. So I, I, I had that plot. Well, I love these characters. I mean, they're just, they're so great, these, these kind of uh, musician types. Do you know musicians? What are the musicians? I used to know musicians. Yeah, I know musicians a little bit. I know them a little bit. Yeah. You know them enough to write them quite <laughs> authentically. <laughs> well, I don't, I hope so. I mean, I, you know, you have to use your imagination and just assume that there are, you know, that there's no one experience of being a musician that there are a million and that this this particular one could be true. Well, you have two rather different uh, musicians and I love the way that you know you you uh put them together and and especially Dench. <laughs> Dench is a bit of a grifter and grifter and drifter. And but he's not the sharpest pencil in the box, is he? Well, he's a he's kind of a leech. He's kind of wandered into that band and kind of hung on and he's kind of, you know, he's alone in the world or yet maybe not. I mean, he's he also ha- has a bit of mystery about him since, again, the story is all from, the story is all from her point of view. Mm-hmm. So, so he has some aspects to his personality that we're not going to quite get if she doesn't get them and and he has he's a bit of a mystery to her she's she's devoted she's in love with him but she also sort of hates him mm-hmm. uh, and you make that uh contradiction easy to understand <laughs> yes <laughs> when you uh came up on these characters and and this kind of uh a jamesian situation did you know who you wanted to tell the story or did that come out of the words which which was was the did she speak to you the loudest and said that tell my story well i think she's in the most interesting position mm-hmm. now she's not the kate croy position of of the james novel she's actually in the denture position the one who's in the couple who goes and 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 has to do the dirty work and then of course in the end to sort of steal a phrase from a different James novel Washington Square this the spring of her affection is broken at the end you know she cannot she goes back and you know she hits him you know she cannot love him anymore after what she's been what they've done which is what happens somewhat at the end of Wings of a Dove and it happens at the end of well, it happens at, at the end of a lot of James novels, and and the characters choose once the once their ability to love has been broken and betrayed, they they choose their own sort of aftermath, and her aftermath is is one of doing good works in the world. 
Uh, I love that. Choose your own aftermath. There's the title for your next collection. <laughs> I don't think that will sell very much. Well, uh, oh no, we're all, we're all living in, in an aftermath for which we had no choice. Right, right. So, well, you can choose a little bit of it. You can't choose the whole thing, but maybe you can't. Maybe the aftermath is the only part you can choose. You know, one of the things I think that's interested me so much about this book was that we in the the stories where the the wars kind of in the background i i love that kind of divisions of conflict between the characters and between the societies you you have ira and zora and then you know you have the united states and iraq you know we're we'll happily bomb anybody who's unlikely to return the favor zora will happily engage with with Ira, maybe not to Ira's complete happiness. So I'd like you to talk about creative, crafting these kind of uh, strategies. Well, I think I wasn't sure that they necessarily could have an eloquent conversation between them, by which I mean the background of the invasion of Iraq and the, and this post-divorce dating story. But I, I, I wanted to put them together because that's how life occurs. So I thought, what? these are two things that would drive any person insane, you know. I mean, I'm using that word loosely. It would, it would, it would really be, these are two stressors. And I wrote the story in 2003 when I when it all was occurring. Someone said to me later, "You really got to work fast, you know, because it and it was published in the New Yorker in 2003. So, you know, the invasion of Iraq had that was when it occurred in 2003. So, I think that was the first piece of fiction about the invasion of Iraq in the New Yorker at any rate um to be printed. And whether or not they're having a conversation, the, the, they're present in, in a single life. And so they need, they need to be there. And at the end, he, you know, Ira is just giving this kind of, you know, soliloquy, which I like to think of as Shakespearean, but, you know, because it has, it has all of his um, existential angst and then his his complete despair about the world and his his little riff on God. And so all on the on Easter weekend. So I don't know. I, I, I you know, every every story is a kind of experiment. You don't know whether it will work, but you just you just you just do it because you believe in it and you're interested in it. So you take to the first person for the the final story thank you for having me and uh, this is another story of uh, about the post 50s dating scene <laughs> and I, I just thought this story was so much fun and, and oh. you you had such a great you have such a great sense of the absurd <laughs> so i'd like you to talk about bringing the the absurd into this woman's life and and she's already pretty much embraced it from the get go yeah i don't I think of this as more I don't I don't think of it as a dating story so much but maybe as a it's certainly a post divorce story but it's a wedding story it takes place at a wedding 
and it's you know the the narrator's daughter's babysitter is getting married and so the the daughter is kind of saying goodbye to her and you know good luck in your new life and it is also a kind of a kind of wedding i've been to before in my life and it's it has wisconsin as a setting and it has all the sort of absurd things about wisconsin from harley davidson gangs to you know growing marijuana in the countryside to i don't know the the mix of of local um wisconsinites with international people who are you know who've come from various countries to sort of go to school and live in madison and so it it's it ends it ends with an image of a red barn so that was my kind of like farewell to wisconsin image i've been speaking with lori moore her new collection of short stories is Bark. Thank you for joining me, Laurie. Oh, thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.